Hello and welcome to the Research Ops podcast, an initiative of the Research Ops community. I'm your host for today, Bridget Metzler, and one of the co-chairs of this huge global volunteer-run community. As always, I'm assuming if you're listening, then you might know a little bit about Research Ops, the mechanisms and processes that set user research in motion. If you'd like to know more about Research Ops, you can find us at our website, researchops.community, or have a look at our Medium publications in English, French, and Portuguese. Follow us at Team Reops on Twitter, find the group on LinkedIn, and join in the conversation at hashtag researchops. For today's talk, we join myself and Adam Banks, founder and director at uxstudy.com. Adam is an expert in designing and building UX labs. Adam has been a member of the community pretty much since we began, and I have been wanting to catch up with him for a very long time. It was a great and wide-ranging conversation, covering the skills required of research ops people, some of the tricky challenges and corners one can take when setting up a research ops function, and we talk about the difference between founding an ops function and doing ops. Of course, seeing as Adam has done it before, we talk about research repositories and we talk about research socialization as well. It was a fascinating chat and I'm so pleased to have been able to record and participate in what felt like a really valuable conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here's our chat. Hi, Adam. Hello, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. So I'll just give a quick introduction about who Adam Banks is and why I'm so excited to chat with him. So Adam has got 20 years experience in designing audiovisual systems and research labs. He spent 10 years at Google working in different areas, so UX research, research space design, audiovisual design. Adam designed, built and managed all of Google's user research labs globally, including the Userplex Research Centre in downtown San Francisco. He was also responsible for Google's research operations team that managed the technical infrastructure and administration for Google's research teams globally. He has designed and built dozens of research and design spaces of varying size and complexity. Adam is currently on the Avixa, is that how you say it? Committee, designing the proposed global standard for user-centered design in audiovisual. He's also worked for Goldman Sachs and the UK government. Welcome, Adam. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming along. So for those of you who have listened to the podcast before, um, we usually have a fairly meandering conversation because um, that's pretty much how I roll. Um, and I thought that we might start um, the podcast today with a funny big old question, which um, Adam has been brave enough to say yes to answer, or at least to attempt, which is, who or what made you in this moment of 2021? So big, big is the word. Um, it's a very big question. Um, I'm, I'm glad you gave me a little bit of notice on this one, because if you just sprung it on me now, I'd, I'd, my head... <laughs> You'd go, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> the stars. Um, so I think I'm going to go with um, what's made me in my life at the moment in terms of how I've set my life up. So I have a young family, I recently moved house, but the biggest thing that's allowed me to 
have so much control over my life was leaving my job at a big corporate. So I'm, I'm going to go with leaving Google because I was there for wow. nearly 10 years. Yeah. And, and as, as you just said, I had a range of jobs. I went into Google working in audiovisual design, moved into user research, went back to university, uh, did my master's in, in HCI and um, became a researcher, but also ran operations, did all the design for labs and everything. And I was in a very cushy job there. I was, um, it's very comfortable. It was all fine. And then I just left. And at the time it was quite scary and it's quite yeah. big. Leave yeah, this, this nice cushy guaranteed paycheck and free food and all the things you'd expect from a big company like that. Mm. Um, and I went off and rented a shipping container with another researcher from Google who also left at the same time. Wow. And we rented a shipping container and set up our own business. And I hadn't realized it at the time. I was doing it as a business decision. It was, I'm going to take what I've learned in my career and go and, and, and be a consultant and go and set up a company. But what I hadn't thought through is how much control it gave me over my life. Mm. And it gave me a lot. It allowed me to do a lot of things. It, it means that I can work very, very hard but when I want to and entirely when I want to. So I'm not on other people's timescales. Yeah, we have a lot of clients we work for and we have to work to their timescales to a degree, mm. but it means I can spend a lot of time with my daughters. It means I can work from home a lot. Even, even pre-COVID, I, I work from home a lot. It means I can do four day weeks and spend a day with my daughters when I want to. Mm. Um, so I'd, I'd say that the, the thing that's really made me and made the way I, I live my life was leaving my job. Wow. That's really fascinating. And what do you think, what do you think it was that gave you that, mm, you know, I mean, a lot of us think about leaving our jobs. <laughs> um, <laughs> hardly anybody takes the leap. Was it, what do you think was the, um, the, the thing that really enabled that for you or made it possible for you to imagine that it could work? I think like anything, there were pull factors and push factors. And the, the push factors were, I was a little bored. Um, I, I, I enjoyed being there, I enjoyed the company, but when, you do, when you're anywhere for 10 years, you're gonna get a bit bored of it. You're gonna get yeah. itchy feet, 10 year itch or whatever. Uh, so there was that. The company was changing a lot around me. I joined what still felt like a, like a scrappy startup company and, and yeah, Google in 2007, when I joined, wasn't a scrappy startup, but it, it still had that feel. Yeah. Fast forward 10 years when I left, it had become a big corporation. And there's nothing wrong with that. All companies go through that change and become big corporations. I just, I, I'd left Goldman Sachs to move to another company because I was bored of working for a big corporation. So they, they were the push factors. The pull factors were, I thought it was a, if I was going to go out on my own, not on my own, but with a partner, but go out and do something that wasn't going and getting a job, it was the right time for me to do it. Um, I didn't have a family yet. I had I'd saved up enough money to bankroll, setting up a company and, and living off essentially nothing for quite a while. Mm. Um, I was young and energetic and, and eager. So, and one of the biggest thing was, my wife told me to do it. She, <laughs> she was extremely supportive, yeah. uh, as she always is. And she just said, if, if this is a thing you want to do, you should definitely go and do it. And that was the, the big thing that kicked it over the line. Yeah, yeah. That's lovely. 
So oh, that means we can talk about all kinds of things because I imagine you've got, you know, you've got all of that experience working at such a huge scale in terms of size and then probably quite a diverse amount of experience in working in smaller um, contexts. So, you know, I'm obviously dying to talk about the uh, research repository <laughs> or, or your, your opinions on research repositories. I'm not sure if you're able to talk about um, the specifics of what you did at Google, but um, yeah, what do you think is is a core driver there for research repositories? I think the driver is people want to get better information. And the obvious first stage you have to do is get all the information. It has to be accessible, it has to be catalogued, it has to be findable, searchable, all, all the things you'd expect from a library. So th this veers very quickly into library science. Yeah. Which in my first degree, I, I didn't know uh, my undergrad degree was in English. I did quite a bit on library sciences. So I carried that through as well in, into. Um, well, that's handy. This career, yeah. Um, even though I was doing English lit, my, 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 in, my British university was very American in that you'd majored and minored. Right. So you courses from loads of different areas. So I did a chunk of courses in librarianship and library science. It was fascinating. Yes. Uh, so. Going back to your question about the driver, people, researchers, research teams, and more broadly companies and teams more generally want more information. And it gets lost. It gets lost so quickly and so easily. Um, so in, in, in my current company, we, we get brought in by usually very big corporations to come and work on their infrastructure. We build labs and design spaces and things like that. But we always talk to them more broadly about research. And one question we always ask them, and this we found this is a good way to gauge the level of maturity. We have a, we have a model we built for the kind of the maturity ladder of a research team within a company. And one of the questions we ask is, if you needed to find some research from nine months ago, how would you do it? And by far the most common answer is, uh, I think we'd ask Claire, she probably knows, or it might be on Mike's laptop, or Sarah had it, but she left, so it's gone with her. Yeah. And we go into very big multinational global corporations, and the answer from the research team is that. Yeah. <laughs> Even today, we had a meeting just before Christmas with a, with a company, and this is what they said. Mm -hmm. um, so the driver is to stop that. Yeah. But everyone thinks a research repository is, is the solution. And it is, you, you need a system. You, you do need a piece of software or somewhere that things get stored, mm -hmm. but everyone thinks there's a magic bullet and I'll just buy this thing and suddenly everything's fine. And they're missing the fact that, that it's a process problem and it's yes. a people problem. Yeah. So the driver should be, we need to agree better processes and they don't need to be minutiae they don't need to be extremely detailed about how we name documents or that kind of thing mm. but it needs to be we have a research process and that process works in this broad way and we all broadly agree to standards mm -hmm. and we, uh, we we have decided as a company or a team on the level of strictness of those standards because some teams like, like an agency probably needs things to be extremely strict. 
because they're churning through clients, they're churning through quantitative and qualitative study, and they need to be able to access that all the time easily and quickly and share it with clients. A research team in a big company is going to vary wildly. When I left Google, we had maybe four, 450 research, researchers on staff, mm. and there were about 450 different methods of doing the research. There weren't many standards at all. And that's okay, as long as you pick the battles and you pick the right things to do. And I think a lot of people, a little naively, think, we'll buy that software, install it, and then everyone will use it. <laughs> and then they're forgetting that the last bit there is the most important bit. Having the software is pointless if no one's using it. Yeah. And people will only use it if they get benefit from it. And if they see a broader benefit to everyone, and if it doesn't take up loads of their time. Mm. Yeah, I think you really sort of hit the nail on the head there. Uh, so many questions. Um, I, I'm interested to know what you think about the about the idea of research operations as a sort of a, like a piece of service design for um, for the service of research. Um, does it feel that way to you? Yeah, definitely. Um, I was having this conversation with someone recently from the British government from a department there because mm -hmm. um, just someone I know quite well and we were chatting over, over a virtual coffee which I do a lot, virtual tea, I don't drink coffee, which I do a lot these days like most people yeah. and he was saying because they, they, they're about to, his department is about to hire their first research ops people. Nice. So he's asking me for some general advice mm -hmm. and I said whatever you do don't hire a researcher to do that job. Yeah. And he said why? I said, it's not a research job. And what will happen, which we used to see happening all the time at Google, they, at Google, they were called research assistants, but their job right. was to do, what, what, to do the research operations role for that team or that department. Mm. What they'd do is they'd hire a very good researcher as a research assistant, and within six months, they'd left. And yeah. they'd gone and get a research job inside the company. It's a very good gateway in. Mm. What they weren't doing was hiring admin assistants or project managers or people with the skill set that you need to be very good in research operations. Mm. What I said to um, to my friend was uh, don't hire a researcher, go and hire a really good executive assistant or admin assistant because mm. they have very very good skills in these areas. Um, and, he, and he said going back to your original question he said well we think we need to hire a service designer to do the research operations and I said no I said you need to hire one to design it and set it up yeah and it's it is a service design problem or project mm -hmm. but the day-to-day -day running of it isn't no so if I have a service designer that expect them to run the service they will just leave as well yeah yes that's an interesting conundrum so does that mean do you think that um there is a role for people to do that service design of research operations and then hand over to, like, do you think that, that we'll see in the future that there'll be research operations consultants who just go in and set up the service and then, and then go on their merry way? Mm. I'm surprised it doesn't already exist. We do, we, we do it to a degree with our clients. It isn't something we formally offer, but because we tend to be brought in when teams are scaling, we, we our, our our typical kind of imaginary client would be a law medium or large size company, often banks or tech firms or government departments, who have research in house, have a team of some type, 
and they're at the point where they're scaling and they're kind of more formalizing their research process. That, that's, that's typically where we're brought in because that's when they need infrastructure. Yeah. They need labs, they need design spaces, they need all the things we provide. Mm. And because of that, they're in the process of needing to operationalize their research. So we always end up advising them on it anyway as part of the process because we're there and they know we know about this. So it isn't something that we advertise as a service, but it's something we do. And yeah. for most of our clients, we've ended up helping them to map out and design how they operationalize their research and how they run it, which people to hire, who to bring in in certain roles for, for periods to spool the role up before you move them into something else, that kind of thing. And it's usually about people and process. Mm-hmm. So where do you think... Is, is there a typical place to get started if you're if you are um, putting in place a research operations function? Do you think, um, or do you think it varies depending on the team? I think it varies so much as to what has come before because I th- it isn't no, nothing in the world is cookie cutter. But yeah. I think some someone can come in who has who has run research operations for a big company like like I did for Google, mm-hmm. and they can come in and go this is how we do it. And we're going to do exactly what I did there. And we're going to sit down and I'm going to draw lovely charts on the wall about how we work. That never works. I've seen people try that in so many areas in different companies. And what they're drawing might be wonderful. It might be perfect, but you have to look at what the people are doing now. You have to look at um, the existing processes and the existing people and their skill sets and how they work. And you can't just flip a coin and tell them, right, we're doing this now that I've drawn on this nice whiteboard. (laughs) So it has to be contextualized to the team and the people. And it might be that your plan is ultimately to end up with what's on that whiteboard, but not tomorrow. It might be in a year we'll get there. So we're going to pick the areas we work on first. And it could be something as basic as, well, one thing we always tell um, companies to do is, share research in an opt-in way for people. So one thing we recommend for big companies is every week, pick three or four insights that you've learned and have a mailing list people can subscribe to and just send those insights out. Just start with something as simple as that. Send it to the whole research team and to anyone else, any stakeholder teams who want to be watching it and say, we did this study, we learned this. Yeah. Just something as basic as that. Just mm. to get people understanding that research is happening all the time, that it's very frequent, that you're learning things from it, and that things are changing in your products and in your company as a bo- as a result of result. it. Yeah. Mm. That, that's one of the first things we always tell people to do in terms of operationalizing research, because everyone has to understand that it's there and it's happening. Mm-hmm. That um, I've seen so many product teams who don't engage with the research all they want is a researcher to turn up and say i hear is the truth i'm bringing the truth go and do it <laughs> it doesn't work that way you have to have everyone involved yeah and you if only we could be the truth sayers <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. Not... <laughs> yeah you, you can't operationalize your research unless everyone understands the process mm-hmm. unless not just the research team but everyone else understands that things are done in a certain way mm. and the output isn't isn't this little nugget of you will do this yeah it's more broad than that 
and it's yeah. more broad You're doing a lot of research on a lot of people mm. uh to Momi, who's uh on the board of um research operations uh and i have long winding chats about research ops and <laughs> um through those long winding chats i've definitely come to the uh opinion that research operations is not really about scaling research but rather it's about scaling your impact and yeah. I think that sort of speaks to what you've what you've said there because that's really what you're sort of suggesting that's that a, we concentrate on fast that's a, yeah I like, I like that it's about scaling impact that's a that's a really nice way of condensing it yeah mm. I know um you know you've, you've mentioned um about getting respect um as being one of the challenges and you know essentially that research operations is one of the challenges of it is uh, is about getting respect and and um yeah I, I suspect if you come to research operations from the perspective that we're just getting organized you can see where you get those research assistants and that's a gateway to research yeah. whereas the other focus you'll probably get different people wouldn't you if you were well, we a large company we were working with, a large bank, they hired someone who I think is one of the best research operations people I've ever met. Mm -hmm. um, she was extremely focused, extremely detail-oriented, and she understood that she was hired as a recruiting assistant just to recruit right. participants. And she quickly realised that the research team needed a lot more than that. And they had a very big team and they didn't have anyone oh. doing anything except recruitment. They probably had maybe maybe 150 researchers globally and no one doing anything operational. They had the 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 direct the research director's admin assistant was doing loads of it, but she had no real experience in it. So she was doing a good enough job, but she had another job to do, which was her real job. So I just so this person they brought in as a recruiter just started taking jobs on and saying, Well, I'll build all the infrastructure, I'll do this, I'll do that. And she was phenomenal. She was yeah. really, really good, but she was the very, very bottom of the ladder. Yeah. And researchers saw her as, oh, she, she kind of, she gets us some participants and then she go, goes and talks to people and makes stuff happen. And oh yeah, that's fine. They didn't understand that she should probably be above them in the hierarchy. Because yeah. She should be telling them, no, you need to do this and I need you to do that. But she didn't have the authority and didn't have the power to do it. Mm -hmm. And it was a real shame. Absolutely fantastic at the job. Yeah. Uh, so a couple of things there. I'm sort of thinking. You know, I think I've I've actually written about it before. There, like that stiletto heel of pressure that you put on one person when you're doing that. It's so yeah. unfair. But then, um, yeah, that lack of authority. So, do you think? Do you see that as as um, as a consistent problem in research ops as it's sort of emerging at the moment? The the yeah. level that you're at. Partly it's because I think a lot of companies aren't hiring the right people in research or research operations. And what I mean by that is I see so many companies where they want to dip their toe in, the, in research. So like, um, I'm trying to think of a real example. Oh, a company we spoke to last year who we never ended up working with because we met them the week before the world fell apart and we went into lockdown. And, um, but they were saying that <clears throat> um, they wanted us to help them to hire researchers. We, we, we don't do recruitment, but what we do is we, if companies who we're already sort of working with need help in how do they find people, who should they recruit? 
-hmm. we, we have we'll have a chat with them spend a morning with them and kind of figure out what they need and, and point them in the right direction so we, we did this with this company who we were going to do some work with and they did what I see so many other companies doing. They were a fairly large tech firm, London-based, employed about 300 people. Most of those 300 are software people, and they run a global software brand. And they've never had any in-house research staff and never done any research of any kind apart from what they call client calls. Oh, yes. And, when I say, and we all know this. So yeah. they, when they, they think that that's user research. And I'm like, yes. No, that's just your clients telling you some features they need. They're not users. I saw like, that as a job title yesterday. Someone said the job title was CX Feedback. Yeah. And that's important for companies. It is. Yes. Software teams need client feedback, but they need to understand that that's totally different to user research. Absolutely yes. different. Mm. Uh, so they, they thought they'd done user research and because of that. And we explained to them it's very different. So we did some sample sessions with them and brought some some participants in and did some sessions on in their office for them um, just to show them what they should be doing and what they can learn and to their credit they, they were kind of blown away and they were like yeah we need to do this we need to bring this in-house we're, we're on board I'm like great so <laughs> went away and they came back with we've got a HR person to write a job spec and the job spec was we're looking for an extremely junior person we're going to pay no money to. And this is the problem. There's nothing wrong with employing junior people. The, the, the whole industry needs junior people to be yes. working their way up. And it's very good. If you're only employing one person and you've never employed anyone, why are you bringing in someone extremely inexperienced who's never done it before, really, or is one or two years out or has done a course? or They're not going to know what to do. Companies should be saying, we're committed to this and we're going to hire a very experienced person and pay them a lot of money. Mm. They think dipping their toe in the water should be cheap and it mm. shouldn't. It needs to be really expensive because you need to get a very good person. Yeah. It's the same in research ops. Mm. What they do is they hire that same junior researcher and say, can you come in? And we've got, we've got a team of five researchers and we've realized that, <clears throat> that, a lot of their time is taken up with these other tasks that they're not particularly good at and we want to free them up. So we'll bring in a junior researcher and that'll solve the problem. And right. it doesn't solve the problem. Mm. They should be bringing in a very experienced admin or project person because a researcher learning those skills is difficult. The people with the skills learning the information and knowledge of research is much easier for them. Yeah. Yeah, that's certainly um, my experience as well. So those are the, the sort of challenges. <laughs> yes. Um, should we talk about the risks and the opportunities of scaling research? Tell me yes. if you've got any thoughts on um, what are the, some of the risks when you do put in place a research ops function? Um, one thing could be that it can stifle work, stifle research, because whenever you add bureaucracy to anything you risk creating layers upon layers of, of, of difficulty of, of, of paperwork of hoops to jump through of forms to fill in and there is and I've seen this happen specifically with research ops in companies where people with the best will in the world create more process when it's not necessarily needed 
And one example of this was a company we were working with. They decided that their recruitment process had never gone through any kind of ethical review. So and it was a very big global I can company. see what's coming. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you can guess what happened. They brought someone in, an external person who was from the, more from academia. Mm. And she came in, did a review of how they recruited things. And she said, what you need to do is exactly how we do it in academia. And that is no one does any research until they've gone to a board. And everyone went, a board? And they went, yeah, you never, ever speak to a person until they've gone to a board. And the company went, okay, yeah, we'll do that. And the researchers were going, what? No, no, we, no that, that's not going to work. We're happy to go through a process. But, and they said, the board will sit once a month. And everyone's like, what, sorry? So I have to wait a month to recruit participants. They're like, no, to start recruiting them, you have to wait a month. And these are all the forms you have to fill in. And the form had over 200 questions in it. What? Some, some Likert scale, some tick boxes, but a lot mm. paragraph entry. Mm -hmm. And it basically just shut down research at this big company. Mm. Yeah. And what, what it actually did was on the surface, it shut down research. But all the researchers just started ignoring it and, and going around it and doing it anyway. Because their job was to do research. And this company didn't centralise user research. Its research was embedded in a team. So they reported to the, the director of their team who was saying, why have you stopped working? They were like, well, there's this new process. And they were going, don't care, do your job. And of course they went right. and did their job. Yeah. So one of the risks is, is too much bureaucracy. Mm. Another risk is that when you bring in research ops people, just by the nature of, of, the, of you needing it shows that your researchers are doing these tasks and all researchers do this. Um, anecdotally, we found that in large companies that don't have any kind of formal support structure or research ops structure, around a third of each researcher's time is taken up by stuff, yeah. Yeah. by admin, by technical problems in labs, by figuring out which bit of software we need to buy all these things by editing video, by uploading and downloading stuff, it takes up around a third of their time. Mm. So when we talk to big companies and we explain this, we ask them how many researchers they have. And they'll say, oh, we have 100 researchers. Yeah. And we'll say, we've been on Glassdoor and we found, we're guessing your salary is X. Yeah. So X times 100 over three is how much money you're wasting on not having mm. in-house operation staff yeah and usually when they see those numbers they go yeah we need to hire people don't we <laughs> but back to your question about the risk mm. the risk is you're taking a third of the role of, of those researchers mm -hmm. and a lot of them will thank you for it a lot of them will go well this is amazing thank you oh this is wonderful some of them really won't no. some of them will um will hate it they'll be like yeah. no i do that, that that's my thing they go, well, I've been hired to do it now. It's my job. No, that's my job. I'm doing that still. Mm. And I've seen this happen. Yeah. Thankfully, it doesn't happen that often. Most researchers are very happy to take that chunk of their work and go, I'm no good at this. You do it. You're much better. Yes. Yeah. Um, what do you think about, you know, what I notice when, you know, because people obviously chat to me quite a bit. And yeah. uh, what I notice is that for an industry that is, user focused we're not particularly good at turning that on ourselves and and, no. and being user-centered 
or even understanding that use, the users are not just the researchers, but that it's the whole sort of ecosystem. Look at the technology for user research. It's changing now. In the past kind of 18 months, couple of years, there's been a big change. But until then, all the technology for user research was pretty dire. Yeah. The software systems, all looked like they were built in the mid-90s for Windows 95. <laughs> um, labs tended to be built extremely complicated and they were built like, either like TV studios and no one could use them, or it was just a laptop and no one could use it. So, and the processes as well, even the way we designed processes were particularly user-friendly. Yeah. I remember one company we worked with, um, I was having lunch with their, what they called their research ops team. It was really just participant recruiters. Right. Um, which is a part of it, but, but yes. you know, they should have been the participant recruitment team, but anyway. Yeah. And they were saying that they were having real trouble with recruiting people in uh, they're a big American company. They go to shopping malls and uh, uh, college campuses and get yeah. people to sign up in person. And I was like, okay, yes, that's, I've seen that done. We used to do that at Google and other places. And the, and the recruiters just over lunch said, well, we have real trouble. We get loads of people interested, but then we, we give them a laptop and most people don't complete it. And I was like, what do you mean? And they said, well, we have a form we've got and they have to fill it in. And I went, can I see the form? They showed it to me, 20 pages mm. of, of Google form, each one with four or five questions on. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, how interested have you got to be to spend, that's going to take, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes. Yeah. I'm out shopping with my family, with my bags. If it takes me one minute, I might do it. If it takes me 20 minutes, it won't. Yeah. Yeah. So I got them, I suggested, and I later found out they did, to just hand out cards with a link on. Yes. Never thought, oh, we can just give people a link and, and hope they get, what they'd said is that if they hand the person a computer and get them to do it, they're guaranteeing that they're there at a computer. Yeah. And I said, see that. That, I said that's a good idea, but you've told me it doesn't work. So try something different. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and then the uh, uh, one thing that I sort of wonder about is, um, and I wonder if it's part of research operations that we haven't really looked at that much, uh, which is the artifacts themselves, the, the stuff that researchers make, and um, that sort of bridging thing that needs to occur to um, help people who are reading that or consuming it to understand what's inside it. Mm. One thing when I so I left Google five years ago now, and one thing that was starting to happen, which was really good, was people weren't bothering with big reports. And obviously, with with the changes in software now that have come through with research repositories and research software, it's made it easier not to do big reports because no one read them. And I remember one thing I did was. I started running research reports through tracker links so I could count the number of people opening them purely internally yes. in the mm -hmm. company. Mm -hmm. And if I sent out a big report, either one of mine or someone else who I worked with, mm -hmm. sent it to either the, 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 the stakeholder team or the whole company or whoever, if they knew it was a big report, very, very few people, some of them got zero clicks, some got a few and we could we could only monitor someone opening the document we couldn't check who actually read it yeah um so we were getting a very small number if we sent out an email with a 100 word synopsis 
very high take up, lots of responses, lots of interest. Right. Yeah. And a lot of people were starting to send out the synopses and give people access to the data. Mm. So when you're talking about the artifacts, I think a problem, a very big problem that still isn't really being addressed is, let's say you, you have a research repository, stuff's got to get in there and it's got to get out of there. And people don't tend to deal with the in and the out of it. So yeah. you buy the piece of software and it might be wonderful. There are some very good ones now available commercially, mm. but you need the processes of how do you, how do you design your study? How do you capture the data? How do you transfer the data? How does it get into the system? And yeah. how do people take it out of the system when they need it? Yeah. And people don't tend to business that. process modeling kind of exactly, yeah. <laughs> yes. And the the whole process of, of user research is still so ad hoc. There's um there's a, a large government department who we build all their labs for them. And our, our systems automate so we can automatically upload things and, and move assets around and rename them and put them where you need them. Big government department, everything's very locked down and they can't do that. Mm. So they have to do it manually. So they manually upload all the video, all the audio and all the notes. And then I said to one of the researchers when I was there one day just visiting, so where do they go? And the researcher said, well, they're on my laptop. I went, yeah, and, and where do they go next? And she just went, well, they're on my laptop now. I went, and what happens to them? And she said, what, what, what do you mean they're on my laptop? And that was it. That was the end of the research road. Oh. <laughs> so they, they spent all the time and effort and money. Mm. And they, this, this department did a lot of research. They had maybe a couple of dozen people in every day across a range of products and a range of labs. So they were churning through research and recruitment and participants and all that time and money just for it to go onto people's laptops and no one ever look at it ever again. Well, they might look at it when they were writing yeah. a report or something, but that's it. Mm -hmm. All that data is gone. Lots of mini graveyards everywhere. <laughs> so many. Like I said, the most common answer when we ask people is, Claire's laptop, Mike's got yeah. it. Oh, we yeah. put it into Google Drive, but I can't remember where. <laughs> so people aren't looking at the processes, and that's a really big problem. Mm. Or, or it's a really big opportunity, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah. So um, what's your favourite part of research operations, do you think? What's the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning? Um, it's quite a boring answer because it's what I do. But the reason yeah. I left Google was I built all the labs in Google and all the infrastructure and all the video infrastructure. And it, I wasn't, I, I, I'd long since stopped working in audiovisual. It's just that I had that background. My yeah. previous background was in theatre. I used to be a lighting designer and theatre designer, a technician. Um, that led me into audiovisual, which led me into Google, which led me into UX. And that's how yeah. I ended up where I am. So even when I was designing all the infrastructure at Google, I wasn't an audiovisual person. Mm -hmm. But I left because we were starting to get lots of companies contacting us saying, we're building our own things and how do we do it? Mm. And I'd give them what advice I could, but I had a job. Yeah. So that's that was what led me on to leaving that job and setting up a company. Mm. So the thing that, that that excites me is the technology behind research. Right. So in in that journey we were just talking about about how you design studies, you perform them, then you have these artifacts and you do things with them. 
there are various chunks of that that is technology mm. and that's that's what i like um yeah. because it, it marries my 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 two careers awesome. i've had yeah. it marries yeah. my career in technology as an engineer and my career in ux mm -hmm. lovely um it strikes me oh just actually i lost my train of thought but i was thinking about how um how much research operations really is an act of faith in um in what research brings to the world mm -hmm. you know like you're you're fundamentally saying this is worth spending time and money and infrastructure and technology on because you know we really believe in the power of of user research to to do good or to do something um do you think that that's sort of at the basis of it of it all definitely um and i think it, it can be very difficult to convince uh, people of, of what you just said, that, that, that it's very powerful and it is important. Mm. And um, even people who broadly think, think that, that UX is important and that research is important and that users are important, it can still be difficult to drag them kicking and screaming <laughs> to actually engaging with the research. Even when I worked at Google, the vast majority of engineers who spent their lives sat at a screen building software systems, most of them never ever saw a real user using them. Wow. Bizarre. So getting them into labs was really important. Mm. It's, it's one thing we, we talk about with our clients where we, we say that field research is extremely important. Other types of research are extremely important. But having a facility in or near your office is important because you've got these two conflicting things. Mm. You need your research as close to your users as, as it can be. And you need your research as close to your teams as it can be. And those two things are the exact opposite. So you have to yeah. marry the two. So persuading some people to even walk to the lab in their building, on their floor, where there's a user they can go and watch, some people just won't do it. It's bizarre. They just think, no, that's someone, that's the researcher's job and they're going to bring me this truth. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, um, I'm sort of in a renewed sense thinking that, um, you know, you said when you hire a research operations person, you don't need to hire a researcher. But I think actually fundamentally what you're really looking for is someone who really believes in the research and has yeah. a completely different skill set. <laughs> yeah. Which isn't easy. Yeah, not not easy at all. Um, one of, well, sorry, one of the best research operations people I've seen, not the person I mentioned earlier, someone else. Yeah. yeah. She didn't care at all about research. Um, huh. Wasn't that interested? She was okay. just extremely focused, very uh. organised, and just really, really good at all of the different things you need to be an operations person. Mm. She'd come from an IT operations background. She used to run. The operational side of a global IT team. So she came into research and she was like, well, I didn't really care about the IT and I don't really care about the research, but I know how to do this job. And she was great. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. All right. Well, I think, I think we'll leave it there. It's been a fabulous meandering journey with you today. I think I've learned a few things and maybe changed my mind on a few things about uh, research operations oh. and, and definitely solidified that it's scaling impact. 
yeah I, I, i'm gonna i'm gonna steal that and use that one <laughs> good <laughs> all right thank you so much adam thanks no, thank you cheers talk again soon see you <laughs> thanks bye bye and that's the end of today's podcast we hope you enjoyed it if you want to hear more please subscribe or join us in the research ops community if there's someone you'd like us to talk to, please drop us a line at teamreops at gmail.com. Our next show is an equally important one with Lucy Sutton, a civil servant and research ops specialist at the Department of Education in the UK. Apart from living with her boyfriend, her cat, dog, and 100 houseplants, Lucy also has disabilities, a degenerative disc disease, fibromyalgia, endometriosis, dyslexia, and dyspraxia. Together, we discuss how research ops can help researchers with disabilities. And we also talk about being a research ops specialist with a disability. We hope you'll join us next time at the Research Ops podcast, or we'll see you soon in the Slack. <laughs>